0: You should teach a skill that makes money to people who have money.
1: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life and how you can do the same. Welcome to The Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Madden Gowrie, when you enter a smaller screen, a phone, or a computer, you are not a celebrity. The moment you enter this space, you are a creator. My guest today, Nathan Barry, is the pioneer of what's being called the creator economy. Nathan is the founder and CEO of ConvertKit, an email marketing platform used by creators like James Clear, Tim Ferriss, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's also the author of Authority, an ebook that has sold over 15,000 copies worldwide since its release. Nathan, thanks for joining us today on the Elevate Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So before we uh, get in your background, um, I thought I'd kick it off with a big picture question just to get everyone on the same page. What is the creator economy and how is it changing how we live and work today?
0: Yeah, so uh, the creator economy, like that that term for it is relatively
1: new, uh, but what everyone's been doing for a long time. Now it's being over-applied to everything that used to already, already existed, like any new term.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but it, it's, it's this idea that you can earn a living in a in a unique way serving an audience and so you know before like hey i have this job and maybe like i have these skills i'm a designer i'm a writer any of those things and i might use them working for a company or or or, you know freelancing or whatever else Uh, but the creator economy is like wait i can use this at scale with an audience right so i can earn a living just by writing a newsletter and having uh sponsorships and advertising in it i can You know, write an ebook and and sell you know ten thousand copies or something, and it's like, wait, that actually makes me more money than uh, like when I was working as a designer at at another you know at a software startup or whatever. And so it's this idea of taking your skills as a as a creator, an artist, a writer. You know, it's kind of an all encompassing uh, term, and using that to like educate, entertain, you know, other people, and they follow you for it, and those people are often happy to buy. Buy things either with their attention or with their money, and that turns into, you know, you being able to pay your mortgage and and beyond. The craziest thing that I realized maybe like five years ago or something, I was like, wait, all of my most, all of my highest earning friends are creators. You know, they're not like doctors or lawyers or like even even the family circles that yeah. I, that I knew. Right? You're like, wait, I know these people making. a year, $500,000 a year. And they're not like anesthesiologists or, you know, they're, they're writers. They're doing, they have this career that like,
1: people are probably like, Hey, what are you going to do with that English major or that like (laughs) communications degree? I, I mean, I always say to my kids, like, if you're the absolute best at whatever you do today, like, even the grasshopper guru, like, there is an audience. Or Oh, yeah. And, but what was the change in this? So, obviously, people are able to get direct to their audiences. So, was it, mm-hmm. it, was it the ability to publish your own book, social media, like, before you either had to get, you know, you had to go beg for a book deal or you had to kind of be part of a media empire? So, is it is it technology that has just enabled people to get... Build an audience directly. Is that the fundamental change? Well, what, why you can make a living doing this now and not not ten years ago?
0: Yeah, I think there's a few changes that layer on top of each other to get where we are now. The first is that the population consuming content on the internet is just much larger, right? If you were writing a, a popular blog in your niche in 2010, right, a, maybe a popular travel blog, you might have 10,000 subscribers to your email list or 10,000 viewers. Yeah. Today, that's more like five hundred thousand. So the first thing is there's just way more people out there. I think the second thing is that the opportunities to get discovered are much better today than they yeah. were before. So uh, back in the day, you might be like guest posting on other other blogs, um, or you'd be using SEO a lot. You're getting search rankings and and uh, showing up there. Today, like you could basically, I recommend a hub and spoke approach. So you like have your core newsletter, your core um, business. Uh, that's the hub. And then you have a, a few of these folks of like, hey, I'm going to really grow on Twitter or YouTube
1: or TikTok. Right. Or Most like people you, have you, done one really well, not five of them average. Right? I think that's true for individuals and for businesses too.
0: Yeah. So even you look at like, um, you and I have talked in the past about like LinkedIn. You know, yep. LinkedIn did not have a discovery engine before. And they built a really good one. Yeah, And you've used that to build a pretty sizable audience, right? I've done the same thing on Twitter. Uh, and so you can kind of... Those discovery engines have gotten significantly better. And so that just allows you to reach a lot more people. Uh, so the same effort... Like, you might put in a ton of effort before and be like, hey, I built an email list to 10,000 people. Yeah. And then now you can put in... still, It's still a lot of work, to be clear. But you put in the same amount of effort and build it to 50,000 or 100,000.
1: Right. I guess also again, there's, there's a place when people hear, let's just pretend you were written up in a magazine article Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, right? 15 years. Like I I'd hear about X person. And then there's a way right away to jump on, grab, follow that person, right. You know, take advantage of that time that you blow up and, 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 and then turn that into people that are following you rather than they had to remember, you know, they heard something about you, or that you were the expert at this. Like that, that seems also to be different, right? That they can, they can jump on your newsletter or follow you. Again, ten years ago, if I went on the Today Show and I was all over the place, like where do people, where do people find me, or how do I get them in my audience, right? Yeah.
0: So I think that's that last component, which is having the tools and systems yeah. to be able to take someone who, from like being aware of you to like you being able to reach out and push content to them. And there's a bunch of ways that you could do this. You know, the the social networks have a little bit of this. Like if I post something, there's a decent chance that you'll see it. You know, if I post it on Twitter. Yeah. But like, it's not guaranteed by any means. Um, like that's why I love email. And I dove into that world is that like now I can push content to you. And so I like the email tools like ConvertKit, uh, what I'm building have gotten way better. But then also just all your options for monetization. Yeah. You know, things where before... I mean, you've been in in this online game for a long time and like 10, 12 years ago, we're using tools like ClickBank and, you know, I don't know what else, right? But I think what were the ones, there was one that everybody used that was just terrible. Lead gen stuff, yeah. Yeah, and then today there's like, there's so many great options for that. And so you combine all of those things together and it takes it from being like, you had to be, really good at internet marketing and all of that to know how to make a living online to now it's like look a lot of the best practices are built into the best tools by
1: default yeah in fact the people that are really good at internet marketing like they're the ones that just feel a little gross like sometimes where they have some average knowledge and and really good marketing and you go to their websites and it just feels like a massive for sale thing rather than this person's an expert and i want to start engaging with their content and their their world yeah, absolutely. So you built this incredible company. We'll get more into this, but let's let's go backwards to how you how you got there. So when you were younger, like, were you always entrepreneurial? Were you selling textbooks in school, getting thrown out of class? Like, I, I have a sense you <laughs> you probably were, but I we haven't had that conversation. Yeah. So I uh, a couple things about me. I grew up in a family that uh, money
0: was very scarce. And so I watched a lot of conflict around money. And then uh, when I was 19, my parents divorced like that. I just watched it like uh, defining factor from like age 10 on basically when I was old enough to notice it. The second thing is I was homeschooled. And so uh, like I didn't have the like selling textbooks or or, like uh, (laughs) now I think you'll get these classes. I was... Talking to someone. There's not like, a lot of people to do business with when you're when you're school Yeah, exactly. But someone was saying like, yeah, my kid goes to Costco and then like loads up on all these snacks and foods and all of that because like at their school they're not allowed to leave, like go off site during lunch, and yeah. so they just run this like black market, you know, <laughs> snack business that's like bringing in hundreds of dollars a day. So I didn't have that opportunity, but um I would do things. Uh, I grew up in a very creative family. Like my dad built the house that we grew up in. Um, we had a shop. And so I would make like wood wood projects and yeah. sell those door-to-door, probably starting when I was like 12 or 13. And then at like, get a booth at craft fairs and, and stuff like that. And then uh, when I was 15, I got into web design and, you know, uh, I got a copy of Photoshop, pirated, of course. Um, and then...
1: Well, they just charged too much money for it back in the day. <laughs> it's just like... Like $800 when you're 15? 800 I was just going to say, it was like 800 or something and you're like a starving student. You're like, where's my in-between... Price, right, yeah,
0: yeah, oh man, yeah, yeah uh, so i um I was in a hurry to grow up, and I was in a hurry to figure out how to make money. and so another thing, I uh, two quick stories on this. one, I remember probably being eleven or twelve, and um you know, we're living like in the mountains like an hour outside of town, and just watching like this most beautiful snow come down, and you're like, sitting there you're supposed to do school and just like want to be anywhere but like
1: you're like what's our vacation day policy here mom yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah homeschooled snow day turns out the bus is not a factor and like we're still all of that and so i'm just
0: watching it and and my mom goes you know school doesn't have to be like a certain number of hours it's like this amount of work that's in front of you and so you can decide whether this takes like the next five hours or the next two hours and it was like oh Right. Okay. And so I was like, you know, was the most like applied focused kid you've ever seen. And 2 hours later I was out sledding in, you know, the beautiful snow. And then another example is a couple years later I realized that because all my friends were older than me, that hadn't really mattered. This is like friends from church youth group or all of that. I was just always hanging out with older kids cuz my siblings were older. And I realized this is fine. Until they're all about to go off to college. And this eight, like this two to three year age gap that I didn't really notice was about to become like very, very obvious. And so then I went to my mom and was like, Hey, is, is high school four years uh, <laughs> or is it a set amount of work? And with the same philosophy that she'd always had, she's like, Look, I already homeschooled your three yeah. older siblings. Did you do the curriculum faster, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is entirely up to you. And so I remember thinking, Uh, We do these road trips from from, uh, Boise, Idaho to uh, Seattle, Washington. It's like eight and a half hours uh, to go visit family every summer. And I remember thinking like, I'm really bored on these drives. Uh, And I'm also really bored when I'm doing algebra. So like, why not? Like, why not just combine those two? Yeah. And I had like my older brother sitting next to me who, you know, and so it's like, I would do a month's worth of, you know, algebra lessons. And just when I got stuck, I would, I would ask him. So I ended up graduating high school and going to college when I was 15. And
1: um, I just went to Boise State. Was that a culture shock given homeschool 15? That seems like a massive jump into a different world. It was to an extent. Um, I had another friend. She'd started
0: going to uh, Boise State when she was 16. And she had said, she had given me a few pieces of advice. But one thing, she was like, don't ever tell people how old you are. Yeah. Because they'll just treat you entirely differently. And I was like, well, how do you, like, people are going to ask. And so she said what to do, which I I did many times and it worked, is if someone says, how old are you? And you go, oh, I guess. And they're like, "Uh," and they're looking at you like, you look 15, (laughs) you know, but there's no way that you could be in this freshman college class at 15. So like, you're probably 17. And you'd be like, oh, good guess. I'm like it. Legitimately, was a good guess. It's wrong. Yeah, that's
1: that's. That, I always say there's a best version of the truth. That's a good guess. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just roll with that, and then be like, uh, "Oh, he's 17. Child prodigy, 17. Yeah." Because
0: one time I I said some like in one class I said I was 15, you know, mm-hmm. and then everybody just treated me totally differently from yeah uh, from then on. So so yeah, the, there's a the best version of the truth. I like that. <laughs> roll with that. So yeah, I was always in a hurry to. uh, To grow up, make money. I ended up dropping out of college at 17 when I got my first web design project that paid over ten thousand dollars, and it was like I'm here to learn how to make money, and I think I'm already
1: doing that. So, but but I thought I read that your one of your maybe it wasn't your first professional experience then because you had your side gig, but was like when were you an intern in the Ohio Idaho legislature?
0: Yeah, I that was when I was 15. Uh, (laughs) So you had to be a senior in high school uh, to do it. You long, um, you lobbied that you were a senior. Well, I mean, on one hand, I was a senior yeah. because, you know, I was actually already taking classes at Boise State and the like the end of the first week that I was working there, I got called into the controller's office. Yeah. And I was like, what's up? And they're like, we missed the fact that you were 15 <laughs> <laughs> like, because they just, <laughs> you know, there's like, you're uh, like, I said, ten. good guess. Right. I was, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And like my birthday was on the form, but you know, everybody's a high school, like everyone was 17 and 18. And so they had missed that. And they were like, look, uh, you could tell they were like, there was some like employment laws that they were up against trying to figure out. And in the legislative session, it would often go late. And they were like, okay, here's the deal. We can, you have a time card. We can never have you write down more than eight hours on a day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or it'll be child labor, yeah.
0: <laughs> if you work more than that, I need you to write those hours down on a different day.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
0: And they're like, never more than eight hours in a day, never more than 40 hours in a week. If you're approaching writing down more than 40 hours in a week, I need you to go home early on Friday. <laughs> and then the, it was all fine. But there
1: was this moment where they were not thrilled. That's pretty funny. So your, your, your strategy for college worked differently th- than there. Yeah, <laughs> it did. So it sounds like maybe you had one or two jobs uh, before you you decided to quit and go on your own, which is not not a surprise. So what was the decision point? And then you've been kind of vocal about this solo entrepreneur. I think that's how you started. Mm-hmm. Like, How did you find your footing as a solo entrepreneur?
0: Yeah. So I did a few different rounds of it, right? Um, in order to pay for, for college. <laughs> that was the other thing. I was too too poor to have money to go to college yeah, and too young to qualify for any of the funding that would normally be available. And so I got a job at Wendy's to pay. It was uh, Boise State at the time was $250 a credit. And I started out just by taking one math class. And so I needed to make $750 uh, in order to pay for that. Uh, I paid for one full semester. And then after I turned 16... Uh, I, so I qualified for financial aid and then college was free for me from then on because I had the, the needs based financial aid. So the jobs that I had, you know, were Wendy's, the internship, uh, and, uh, what else I I worked briefly at the Boise State bookstore, you know, like checking in backpacks as one does, (laughs) you know, um, the other things that I did, you know, it, it just started very slowly of like freelancing. Logo design, websites, that kind of thing, ramped up from there, um, and I built a whole business doing that. I got to the point where I was making about maybe like six to eight thousand dollars a month wow. freelancing, and then in two thousand, the end of two thousand eight, I had like the best month ever, like the projects that all come together, and so it did really well with that. I think I'd invoiced for like $14,000, you know, there's always the timing of payments, but it felt like given,
1: but, but your age and back into that, that was a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it
0: was. And, uh, I was 18 then. And then, um, went on a trip with some friends and my girlfriend at the time, now wife, and we went to South Africa for five weeks and, um, We have friends who are a pilot with this organization called Mission Aviation Fellowship. And it's like, hey, I'm going back to South Africa to recertify. He's a flight instructor to go recertify our pilots. Like, do you want to come? So we spent five weeks traveling around South Africa and Lesotho. And I came back and was like, I just had a killer run. I've got all these deals that I'm going to talk to. Like, this is going to be amazing. And I went back and talked to like the eight deals that I thought I would close. And every single one of them said, we're not spending money anymore. Yeah, yeah, this was right in the depth. of It was the, January
1: 2009, yeah. and sounds like today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, we're suddenly not spending money anymore. Yeah,
0: yeah, and so in that moment, I then had one client who had done a small project for who was like, "We're looking for someone full time to join our design team." They were like a 15 person software startup. Yeah, and so then I joined their their uh, software design team uh, and was there for almost three years, and so that was a good like. Team building experience and i got to work on ios like right when the ipad came out and a lot of fun projects like that
1: that was right in your sweet spot
0: yeah so i bounced back and forth a bit between like freelance and then uh, you know full-time employment all
1: right so 2008 global great re- what was it called the great recession i can't remember what it was yeah called, the great recession great recession you take this job to survive you're there for three years then what led you to to starting ConvertKit? Yeah, so
0: I had wanted to be out of my own. I wanted to work remotely. And like I around that time, I'd applied to work at kind of the best remote companies at the time. Like uh, the three were GitHub. Uh, I was going to say, there weren't a lot, and they were all like, yeah, techie, developer. Yeah, get, yeah. Uh, <laughs> GitHub, Automatic, who makes WordPress.com, and 37signals, uh, uh, who makes Basecamp. So those were the three. Uh, didn't get a job at any of those. But I was like ready to ready to travel and and do other things I'd read four hour work week you know and so started to like think about things in in different ways but i I got into building iOS apps uh, right when the iPad came out uh, we had to do that for a work project and that was fantastic and then a few of us uh, at that company like kept going on the side to keep learning and so I made a few apps that started making a couple thousand dollars a month, uh, in the app store. And I just saved all of that money. And so then, uh, in late 2011, I
1: like
0: the startup we were at, like they'd raised a whole bunch of money. They'd raised 36 million, which for Boise
1: at that time was just an absurd amount of money. Yeah. That must've been a record.
0: Yeah. I I think so. And it was over, you know, four years or whatever, but still like they, at one point they were uh, burning a million dollars a month and you know, it was it was a mess. So they like went up and then down the other side and watched a bunch of layoffs. And it's like, I still have a job, but it's, <laughs> it's time to go. Yeah. And so on that, I, I went out on my own, did freelance iOS design uh, for a while, kind of started some newsletters, like a blog, um, and was playing in that world. And then in 2012, I wrote a book called the app design handbook. And was that self-published? That was self-published yeah. ebook. Um, my goal, I, I had two goals from that book. One was, if you want to hire people, you want to hire a designer, you might want to hire the guy who wrote the book on it. Yeah. You know, and so that would be good lead gen. At the time, there's only one other book on iOS design. And I took a fairly different, different approach. And so uh, the goal was to get a bunch of clients from that. And then the second goal, like I wanted to make money from it, but I thought if I could make $10,000 over like the lifetime of the book from direct sales, that would be, that'd be great. I launched it to an email list of eight hundred people that I built on Mailchimp, and it made twelve thousand dollars in sales in the first day. Wow! And it was nineteen thousand by like the first week, and then it was just like off from there. I think that that book ended up selling like four or five hundred thousand dollars worth over like the next three years.
1: Right, and then because you self published it, we're able to keep the majority of that for yourself. Yeah, all
0: but. Three and a
1: half percent for credit card processing. (laughs) Right. Ebook. It was all, it was so not physical at all. Yeah. Not physical at all. Pure Uh, ebook. I guess if you're an app designer, you're (laughs) electronic (laughs) is the way to to go. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I like, I made it format really well on the iPad and stuff like that. So that was a good reading experience. And, but then I got hooked on email because it was like, wait, the sales from this are coming from. Like there's more emails driving more sales than every other channel, like Facebook, Twitter, all that, all of them combined.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best in class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car the new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So this is a, you are solving your own problem, Genesis story. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and then, a lot then of coming started, out common is solving your own problem. I've noticed that you created a company for monetizing creativity when your childhood was about not enough money and being creative. (laughs) It's very interesting, the the pattern analysis with a lot of startups. Yeah, there's... uh, (laughs) Particularly, actually, (laughs) with the successful ones, I I think, because it's very purposeful. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, on
0: from there, I ended up writing another book,
1: uh, self-publishing that, launched it to a bigger
0: email list that sold $26,000 in the first day, You know, and it was on from there. And I was just building all of it, like figuring out how to, like learning best practices and then hacking MailChimp to make them work. And so then uh, in January, 2013, I was like, okay, I'm gonna launch my own SaaS company. And I settled on email as the thing and I'm like basically gonna solve this problem for myself and build an email tool for like content creators like me.
1: What were you not getting from the email provider that you needed? Yeah, there were three things that I was like really hung up on. <laughs> uh,
0: the first is that I wanted it to be subscriber centric instead of list centric. So yeah. you end up with like a list of people, your like your whole list, and then a separate list of who had bought your product, and like got it. Merging that was really a pain. And there were tools like uh, Infusionsoft at the time was what everybody used, but that was too heavy for us. A... It was it was way too heavy, yeah. and I was like, I'm a designer talking about user experience and all of this, and like. That's the tool that I'm going to use? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so th- that was the first one. The second one is I wanted it to be really easy. Um, the industry term that ended up being used for a while is a lead magnet of like, if you subscribe to my email list, I will give you the sample chapter of the book or you know, this free guide or whatever yep. else. And that was totally a pain to set up. Not too long later, uh, lead pages came along and they made that like that piece of it really easy, but it was never easy in an email tool. Uh, and then the third thing is MailChimp had these, they call them campaigns or sequences, I think. You know, you sign up, and you get a series of automated emails. And I just hated the interface for that. Like you're going in to edit one email and then come back out. And I was like, why isn't it just a clean interface where down the side, it has all your emails and the timing. And I can click right between them. There's no page refresh. And I can just see, oh yeah, I I wrapped up. You know, email three like this, and so I'm going to start email four like that, and I can reference
1: it quickly. And so those were the three things that I started with. And also, didn't you sort of realize from the user standpoint that something that just looked more like an email from the person rather than a newsletter? <laughs> that was another one. Yeah,
0: I spent so much time trying to strip down like a yeah. a Mailchimp template. To look like I had opened up Gmail and sent an email to a friend. And it was like, why is this taking me like an hour to like get rid of code and try to remove
1: the columns and layouts and all of that? Right. So you solve your own problem. You launch this. The word creator is not really out there then. So who and how do you market this to other people? Uh, Poorly. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but because there was a lot of email there was it's a very and, I, and honestly space. when you and i first met six seven years ago like i didn't get it. i'm like I what's different there's a hundred email yeah. things you know everyone knows can't uh uh what's the constant, constant contact yeah yeah and, and and the one you were using and mailchimp and all these yeah yeah I mean, we could probably sit here and list off i mean today a <laughs>
0: dozen or more email yeah. companies that are doing like 100 million a year plus in revenue it's famously like not a winner take all market like yeah. you come into like other things especially in software you get a lot of like winner take all or winner take uh, almost all and mailchimp's the biggest by far at a billion arr but there's a lot of players in the 25 to
1: 200 million a year in revenue range like
0: like at least 20
1: or more yeah there's a lot yeah or they're part they're owned by larger you know companies now who've incorporated into their uh, into their offering yeah, there's there's a lot of roll ups and that kind
0: of thing that have happened. But um, so let's see, uh, the product. Oh, you're talking about like marketing and positioning. I struggled with that. Like the first two years were pretty pretty rough. It took two years to get to two thousand a month in revenue. Wow. Well, actually, specifically, it took six months to get to two thousand a month in revenue, and then you stayed there. And then there. it <laughs> took another eighteen months to get beyond that. Um, and really. I tried out different positioning things. Uh, It was really hard to like narrow in on a niche, even though that's what you should do. Cause you would feel like you're excluding people. And I eventually tried that. I was like, okay, we'll focus specifically on authors.
1: Right. That was what it served you
0: right. As an author. Yep. But that attracted a lot of like, Hey, my dream one day is to publish a Kindle book and sell it for $2.
1: (laughs) And so this email thing is pretty expensive. And so I'm not going to, you know, so, and so, what you're saying is, marketing to starving artists is not not a great source of revenue. Yeah, if you want to make money yourself with your product, yeah, <laughs> don't do that. You, you need people that already have uh, some level of of success and and who get it right. When I wrote about publishing eBooks and all of that, because the third book that I wrote is called
0: Authority, which is all about you know becoming an authority in the space and everything. One line in there is, "You should teach a skill that makes money." To people who have money, yeah, <laughs> and like if you get that intersection, it's important.
1: My my parallel in our industry as we were scaling our business was never sell marketing services to the CEO. Like you want someone because they're they're like oh I could do this or my kid's college education, right? We want to sell to a marketer who has a budget to spend on marketing. Like, working with the <laughs> yes. CEO was always a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I b-
0: I believe that. <laughs> um, so. The positioning that really made a difference is we focused on email marketing for professional bloggers, and that ended up resonating well. They had bigger email lists. They were, you know, authors. They were usually public, like self-publishing or traditional publishing, a book, but they had courses. Like they are making money, and that ended up going pretty well. And so we focused on very specific uh, niches like uh, paleo recipe blogs, uh, men's fashion blogs, you know, and we get like take this very niche focused approach. And then did a lot of direct sales, and what we called concierge migrations, which is basically we'll do the whole switch for you for free. Which at the beginning was just me, uh, like watching Netflix on one (laughs) monitor, you know, and then like copying and pasting uh, email automations, (laughs) you know, on the other. Yeah, Uh, but it worked, and we we got got a good amount of traction. And so in the third year of business, which was twenty fifteen, we went from two thousand a month in revenue to a hundred thousand a month, and that was like when word of mouth really started to kick in off from there.
1: So I I think one of your big breakthroughs was you, you maybe stalked was, was the right word, Tim Ferriss down and and convinced him, you know, he had a massive following, obviously, you know, author, blog, probably not as much podcast at the time and convinced him to, or someone on his team to switch to your platform. What went down there? Yeah. So a couple people had come first. So we'd gotten uh, Pat Flynn and another uh,
0: yeah. big blog called wellness mama. we were about when we were at like 15 K in revenue. And then when they started, maybe we we're at 25 K by the time they started saying, Hey, we're, we're using this tool. And that really helped. Probably when we got Tim Ferriss, we were bigger, maybe more like three or 400,000 a month in revenue. And another friend of mine had introduced us because, uh, they knew each other a bit. And Tim was thinking about doing something with his email list on fourhourworkweek.com. He had always had an email opt in form that went to a tool called GetResponse. And he just didn't do anything with it. And I think he, maybe when a book came out, he'd done something, um, but very, very little. And I think maybe when Four Hour Body came out, I'm trying to think of the yeah. timing, he was like, hey, maybe I should start to do something with this. Uh, he was launching the podcast, but he had no real reason to move. So I, I like walked him through some email strategy stuff. We talked about how to, um, like, how to warm up a cold list because uh, there's just a lot of like pretty easy to avoid mistakes in that. But like he wasn't going to be the guy to uh, get them get him to switch. And so my friend Ryan Delk, who had originally introduced us, taught me about what he calls the right hand man principle. Yeah. Like Tim doesn't have time; he's hard to get a hold of. Right, you know, right. sure he'll respond to your text messages. Who's the person he trusts? Who's the person he trusts who actually runs all of this? Yeah. And so I found out that uh, that was a guy named Adam who lived in Denver. And so that was one of those things. I got an intro to Adam, and was like, oh hey, I'm going to happen to be in in Denver in two weeks. Like, you want to get coffee? Uh, we met up there, and that was that was great. Talked through that, and so then I could have. Enough of conversations with Adam where we could actually talk about the real benefits of email and diving into this, like because it takes time to talk through like a big transition. Yeah, and so I think that probably took about three or four months of talking through the details of how to warm up the list and all these other things.
1: As you're Uh, demonstrating this to him through emails and follow up. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But the biggest thing, like going and meeting someone in person. Yeah, I think people forget that and all that. We all we all like. The virtual and the flexibility, yeah. I, but I think some of the big deals are going to be done in person. And I think that's something it, I'm look. I'm a huge fan of the hybrid and remote work, but oh, yeah, that's something we all need to not lose sight
0: of. Well, and I think remote work gives you the flexibility to be like, look, I'm not commuting to an office all day right. every day, and so I'm going to deliberately fly to this other city with exactly. some of my time that I've yeah. saved, and I'm going to line up a bunch of meetings. I've, I've learned a ton from Ryan Delk, um, but uh, there's another creator named uh, Ramit Sethi uh, who was one of the people who, you know, like built early built up a big blog and email list and and um, all of that in the personal finance space. And we'd exchanged emails because of some of the stuff I'd done with the eBooks and pricing. And Ramit had said, you know, like, hey, if you're ever in New York, like let's let's grab. All right, specifically, say let, let's go get tea. And I remember I told Ryan about that, and I was like, oh man. I don't have a reason to be in New York. Yeah, I've done this. I'm going to be in New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because I was like, I don't have a reason to be in New York. But, you know, the next time I'm there, you know, like Ramit said, we can go get tea. And Ryan is just like looking at me. He's like, that is the reason to be in New York. Like you say, oh, sweet. I'm going to be there.
1: Like I'm I'm planning a trip to go meet with these customers or or whatever else. Like I'm going to be there either this week or that week. I did that a lot. It only burned me once, where I flew to Seattle and the person canceled with me <laughs> that I was going to already be in town. So yes, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> so there can be downsides.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you line up a whole trip around it, right? You you get that anchor meeting, and then you're like, sweet, yeah. Now I, then now you actually are going to be in Seattle on those dates, and so you yeah. line up five or six other meetings, or a customer meetup, or whatever else. And so that worked really well to get like a, a bunch of early customers. I had this like New York, Nashville, San Diego, you know, like where where the like the bloggers and writers try to meet in person. And so yeah, that's that was kind of the early scaling of the company.
1: So there's some things about ConvertKit. and I know probably again for you tying into upbringing and the culture, but but there's some things that are really different I and mean, you know, you built this thriving uh, company haven't raised any money, but one of the things about the culture, just major transparency. All your major financial metrics, revenue churn targets, are actually they're publicly <laughs> available. Yeah, right. Like, what the hell made you decide to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's uh, one thing to make them public to your employees, but, but right. just public, public. I mean, it's a dashboard that
0: I look at yeah. in every day. Uh, someone else could also look at every day at
1: ConvertKit.com/slash-metrics. So, what's your revenue run rate, you know right now?
0: yeah, we're thirty two point three million uh a year in revenue, totally
1: bootstrap, yep,
0: no, yep. no outside capital uh, into the business so um, what made me do that? I was always curious about money, and I didn't have a lot of people who were good with money around me who were a good role model for it. And so I remember when I was taking this job at the software company, I, I realized like I'm gonna have to negotiate for a salary, and I don't have any clue how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my now father-in-law was like, like I kind of mentioned that, and he was like, oh, and he like goes to a shelf and gets this little book on salary negotiation. He's like, here, you need this, you know. And I just had all these things like, what is a good salary when you're 19 years old trying to like? I would have said yes to. $30,000, yeah. $40,000 a year. Yeah. yeah. And actually a, f- a funny moment, the the salary book talked about how when someone makes an offer on a salary, like just don't say anything and just think about it. Yeah. And what happened is I went out to lunch with the COO of the startup and like I was totally out of my element, you know, oh, but I remember I had ordered this bagel sandwich, which is just an awkward thing to eat. Like it's, you know, uh, all that, but he had started talking about salary and I had taken too big of a bite. And so he said, hey, you know, we're thinking about um, this offer and, and uh, we'd like to offer you $50,000 a year. And I had taken too big of a bite and I was raised well. And so I was not going to talk with my mouth full. Yeah. So I'm like trying to chew through this bite. And he goes, or $60,000 a year. <laughs> and I would have loved to accept the 50000 number. Yeah. And so that was my like accidental uh, improved salary negotiation. That's a good lesson. <laughs> yeah, just take your time. Like, let them. Because I, I think he thought that I was like offended at the fifty thousand dollars a year offer or something like.
1: That. Open-ended question. I remember you uh, in college, Herb Cohen, You can negotiate anything. You know, he's like open-ended responses. Like, what do mm-hmm. you think of that? Or what were you thinking? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all of all of those things are good. So these examples of
0: people actually sharing real numbers had a big impact on me. Mm. So, for example, I was thinking that I wanted to write a book. You know, like the first book, and I'd seen examples of people self-publishing, like the Basecamp guys. And they're like, hey, we we self-published our book, Getting Real. It made a hundred thousand dollars. Oh wait, two hundred. Okay, now it's made four hundred thousand dollars. And you're like, well, of course, you're like internet famous in these circles. Like, you can make hundreds of thousands of dollars self-publishing. That's not relatable to me. And there were these two designers who didn't know each other. Uh, the names were Sasha Grief and Jared Drysdale. And pure by chance, they published like self-published eBooks on design on the same day. Uh, it was March, 2012. And it, they, they showed up on like the, uh, the news aggregator, Hacker News, and they were on Twitter. And, and it was just interesting. And they had very different pricing models. And so Jason Cohen, who's the uh, founder of WP Engine, invited both of them to come on his blog and write guest posts about why their pricing model was better. And they shared all their real numbers. And these were people like me. And so, you know, they were not internet famous. They had a little bit of a following. They were designers and one of them had made uh, $6,000 in 48 hours and the other made $8,000 in 48 hours. Interesting. And that was like real money. And so that really encouraged me to be like, oh, I could do this. And so I wrote and, like my own uh, ebook, published it. And then I actually went back and wrote another article. Uh, Jason was like, hey, Now, Nathan, come write an article as well. And so there's this like three article series on pricing and packaging of ebooks that, you know, is really, really interesting. But I've just always appreciated when someone will share real numbers because it it gives so much context. And so my version of paying that forward is that I've always shared real numbers because my idea is that if someone else is building a software company, they might be like, oh man, we're really struggling with churn. I wonder what ConvertKit's churn was hmm. when they were at 25,000 MRR and they could go on our dash. They're not like combing through blog posts to try to find, did I write an article or mention it briefly in, a, in an interview? They can actually just go find 25,000 MRR and be like, oh, that was summer 2015. And then just change the date range to that and look at the exact metrics in that moment. And so hopefully that those are breadcrumbs that will... Uh,
1: hey, elevate Listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Yeah. So this is just a pay it, obviously transparent with your team about what's going yeah. on. And But this is a, a pay it forward exercise. Yeah, it's the world that I want to live in. And so I'm trying to create that. So this leads me to the thing I really was interested to dive into you on. And I know when I saw you post this whole thing on, on Twitter about it. So so one of the things I'm sure there's some business owners listening, like, you make all this public, like 30 million ARR, you control it, making this much money, like, isn't that going to piss everyone off? You know, aren't you greedy otherwise? And, and mm-hmm. you have a really unique equity program that you've done. And I think it sort of breaks the paradigm. I think other people might want to do this. They don't know how, I think if you think about equity, there's, there's kind of historically three things. There's a venture back company where everyone gets it, but it's swing for the fences and it's going to be worth nothing or something, you know, seven or eight, probably 10 years down the line. Um, So I think we're used to that. I think people hear about the wins. They don't hear about the losses. If you look at a venture portfolio, the losses are 90% of it will be worth zero and 10% of it will be worth 10 X and, I'm not sure that any of us are smart enough to, you know, pick the right one. Like, yeah. Yep. yeah. So, so, you know, there's a lot of luck and timing. There's actually a push private equity companies, you know, historically really incentivize and give equity to the top 25, you know, 30% of the company. And, and there's push now with the bigger ones to give kind of equity for all, but there's also an expectation that there's a three to five year liquidity. So one of the things about having equity and to be meaningful is it, is that, it has to be worth something, right? right? And there's a lot of people running businesses that they don't intend to sell, family-owned or otherwise. And they're like, well, I'm not sure the equity is going to be... I don't know what it's worth or motivating for people or otherwise. And, and so I think some of them might want to do it, but they don't do it. And it creates this us and them dynamic. I, you seem to have solved this in a way that's frustrated <laughs> a lot of businesses, <laughs> Uh, in a pretty unique way. I mean, I know there's some phantom equity, but but especially with the liquidity and sort of how you view, and I'm sure, again, this goes back to your childhood and help making other people successful. How have you sort of done this and aligned everyone's incentive and solved the liquidity problem of, if I might never sell my business, then how's your equity worth anything? Yeah. Oh, man, I have thought and struggled <laughs> with this question and
0: and gone back and forth at so many different times. Because you think about... Um, who you're following in business like at first i started out and i was thinking like in the startup space and i thought i was going to work on convertkit for two or three years maybe four years and then sell it and so like the very first people coming on got equity
1: yeah this is gonna be like a venture We're we're gonna sell it we're yep. you're gonna you might raise money. capital yeah. we might, might not who knows right uh but this is a a, a four-year project maybe
0: and then I got to the point where I realized I love this. This is what I want to do. I want to, and I want to stay opted out of the, the venture track, you know, of yep. go from your series A to B to C and on from there. I think we made it to about 200,000 a month in revenue, no outside capital. And I was like, oh, and we gotten profitable and I was like, we can do this. And so then I, I was really listening to, you know, companies like Basecamp and MailChimp. And the base camp guys in particular
1: would say all these things like, if you're never going to sell, equity has no value. Right. And they were the big, we're never going to sell our business. But I never then understood how they looked at compensation with the people. Again, how do you get... I mean, a lot of people They were, paid, paid giant salaries. I mean, they were paying $200,000 right,
0: okay. a year for engineers when that was 50% over market.
1: Yeah. Or, or you say to people, here's a percent of the profit and we'll give you a profit share each year. Yep. Right. Yeah. So
0: I had this moment... You know, as I'd flip back to like, we're never going to sell, so I'm not giving out equity. And we did profit sharing. Uh, we can talk about that. But I had this moment where I realized that based on the multiples of software companies, I had built this business that was worth like
1: $50 million. And it was increasing in value substantially. So already anything that would have solved any of your needs and your childhood overcompensation and everything, you were you yeah. were already there.
0: Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> and so it was just sort of, sort of this thing uh, an early team member who had equity had left where I had bought back his equity. And so it's like, yeah, equity never has value uh, if you're not going to sell. And I'm like currently making payments to buy equity from someone who had left. And you're like, wait, this doesn't, that, that clearly has value. And then I hear examples from like um, uh, Campaign Monitor or Atlassian or some of these other companies who had done, they'd gone on to build incredible independent companies. I mean, Campaign Monitor uh, will eventually kind of sold. I don't know. <laughs> they ended up rolling up a whole bunch of companies, right? But they'd done these secondary rounds and I realized like, oh, if you build a valuable
1: company, someone will always want to buy a part of it. Yeah. And there is a lot more of a market even in Silicon Valley for that. Like, If you don't have to wait till your company sells or go public, there's, there's people if you're in a... But that's a very limited set of popular companies that there's a market for people to buy your stock.
0: Yeah. So in 2018, I realized like, I'm not sure how this is going to have value, but I'm pretty sure it, it will. And so I, I uh, took 10% of the company and issued it to the team in the form of um, stock options. And it was like, hey, we're going to figure this out later. And what we started doing is uh, we started saving a small amount. It was just $20,000 a month uh, in an equity buyback pool. And I don't know what the multiple will be and, and all of that, but at least we're starting that now. And uh, you know, we
1: have, have some options there. And so that's as people want to sell in the future, you will have the cash to buy them out.
0: Yeah, and we were not saving enough
1: that, yep. like, it was a substantial amount. Right, because if your business overperforms, then yeah, then then it's going to add up quickly. Yeah, and, and this is for people to understand it from the business side. The problem that you need to avoid it's it's the run on the bank problem, right? Where people want to sell all their equity at once and and you're growing a business and cash is tied up and you, you in theory, want to buy it. But right. sometimes you can only buy it with a loan to, you know, to pay it. There's not enough money. Well, in the first equity that I bought back, you know, I bought with a seller-financed loan. Yeah, uh, exactly.
0: And we, we paid $250,000 up front. And then right. the, the next million, we paid over like a
1: three-year period. And to be clear, it's not that people don't want to do it, but the same problem. If we all went to try to get our money out of our Local bank, there's not enough bills in the bank. It would not go up, right? This is what the <laughs> yeah. FDIC is there is there for. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so we we ramped up that over time, and it was sort of this thing of like we're still trying to figure it out. And then a couple things in in early last year, so 2021, um, a, a few things happened at once. One, we got an offer from uh, Spotify to acquire the company, or like like early strong interest, and they. They came in, they're, you know, doing a lot in the, um, podcast space. And they're like, you know, we had a lot of top podcasts, ran their email list through us, you know, and a lot of great relationships there. They'd purchased Anchor. And so they, they're trying to provide a lot more services in that creator world, basically. Yeah. So I thought about it a bunch and then decided like, I don't want to sell, um, And I think that was the right decision.
1: I was quite happy with that. Uh, And then I had team members. Right. I was going to guessing everyone who was about to have a payout might not have been as happy about that. (laughs) Yeah. I had a few team
0: members in particular who were like, we've been doing this a long time. Like, we do want to sell. And like, we had private equity offers before, but this was like a name brand company. Like, it looked really good on, you know, on a resume. And this was going to be life-changing money for a lot of that, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, um, I had this problem with people who were like, uh, so you're you're saying you're going to figure out this liquidity thing. <laughs> that was a way. you know <laughs> um, what else are you going to do? And I was talking about on my podcast, I was talking about the problem of liquidity in closely held companies, yeah, and uh, I was talking about with Sampar, and he'd recently sold the hustle to HubSpot. And so Dharmesh Shah, who's the CTO and co-founder of HubSpot, who I've known kind of off and on since 2013, I was listening to that episode. And we were just talking like high level of like, how do you do this? And, and there needs to be better solutions and all of that. And like talking about some of these new things like AngelList was coming out with and Carta, and like these platforms are trying to solve this problem. And Darmesh just said, "Hey, if you have employees, he sent me an email. If you have employees that want to sell, I would happily buy a million dollars worth of stock from someone who wants to sell. Like, I'm going to do my thing. You know, I will never be like, hey, man, where's
1: my four year or six year return or or whatever.' Darmesh also doesn't need money. Darmesh yeah. does not need money. He's <laughs> yeah. he's doing all <laughs> doing that quite all well right. with HubSpot. He's a great guy.
0: Yeah, and he's just someone who I've had." a ton of respect for and has the ultimate integrity, like for like a decade, you know, that I've um, known him. And so I was like, Oh, this is interesting. And so what we ended up doing is putting together uh, something that I think of as many of the benefits of being publicly traded without a lot of the downsides. And so the way the system works is every two years to start out. And then we're going to switch to every year, once the the demand on both sides of the market is there uh we're doing secondary rounds and they're not from one big venture or private equity firm or something like that um what it is instead is it's basically friends of convertkit whoever wants to buy shares you do have to be an accredited investor yeah but uh AngelList runs the whole process they spin up a new company a roll-up vehicle and so everybody puts money into that, and then that roll of vehicle buys so the these share. are
1: people who want to be investors in Verkit, knowing that you don't ever possibly want to sell correct but then they could trade up in a few years, right yeah. yep, and so there's these windows, yeah, and so
0: what it ended up being uh we chose a two hundred million dollar valuation, like kind of just going back and forth with uh with Dormesh, so we basically said that's the valuation here's the here's the price. we had forty two people like put in money the range, um, well, you know, we had at, from checks as little as I think $10,000 to the person who put in the most was like three and a half million. Mm. We ended up returning a lot of money. we were oversubscribed. Yeah. We were well oversubscribed. Actually, it's a friend of ours, uh, who we'll talk about yeah. separately who put in that money, uh,
1: another MMT. I, I think I know who that is. So,
0: yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that was that side. The The team, we had about 25 team members sell shares. People sold as much as uh, like the team members sold the most, sold like a million and a half. And the team members who sold the least had sold like $10,000 worth. Um, someone like it ranged from like, hey, I'm halfway to a down payment on a house and this is going to kick me over um, to like my parents have this medical debt that I've like
1: always wanted to uh, take care of for them. And so they're able to do that. So it occurs to me in doing this, you might have the opposite problem with employees who don't have liquidity to employees that have too much liquidity because this is supposed to keep them around for the long run, right? Yeah. There would <laughs> yeah. You definitely could. Can you sell all if you're vested, can you sell all of your equity in one of these? Um, the way
0: that we said, like we I'm a person who will always like downplay like. This is, I think, the valuation that we can get. And it's lower than I think what we, you know, I'm like
1: talking about things in very conservative terms. So they're leaving some money on the table, ostensibly.
0: Yeah, in in theory, right? Um, So like when we had had talked about doing equity buyback, we'd be like, you know, that'd probably be at like maybe three to four X ARR. Yeah. And then we did this round at seven X ARR because I was pretty convinced that, like, we're not a hyper growth company anymore. You know, and I was pretty convinced that the market was not going to stay super inflated. And I wanted to think for the long term. And I didn't want to be like, here's yeah. a $200 million or $300
1: million round and then a 250 million. Well, well, you and I have seen too. When I've seen companies... I know a company that raised during the height of the last thing, a SaaS at like a 20x. Yeah. I don't think they'll ever grow into their valuation. And now oh, they yeah. need more money and they'll do a down round and no one will make money. So, So these these valuations that get out of control, if people understand preferences and stuff like that, it it can actually destroy. (laughs) It can destroy a cap table and a company. Yeah. And the company in the long run, because other than the founder, you know, particularly if you have outside investors who have preferences, it starts to just, you know, you'll never grow into your pants basically. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to like put out a system for a long period
0: of time. And I I think it's I think it's worked well. Um I went back and forth a bunch uh on whether or not my wife and I should sell shares. Like we've done well in taking profits out of the business. And so, you know, we thought like this isn't going to make a huge difference for us, like you know, cashing out money right now. But then we talked about it and realized like, oh, it would make a big difference for our parents. Like money today versus money 3 or 4 years from now. And so we ended up selling uh 1 and a quarter percent of of the business, uh, ourselves took two and a half million and used that to retire all of our parents. And they, you know, they were all like three or four years from
1: retirement, yeah. and various levels of, of comfort, uh, or like cushion in that retirement. So that just came full circle for you. That was, yeah. you took the stress and put it away for that. I mean, that must've been emotional. Yeah, it was. I mean, I I feel emotional just just talking about it now. I can can see it. Most people won't be able to see it, but yeah, I can see it. I feel like showing up with a publisher's clearing house, like check a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, you always think about how much time someone has and, and, uh, my stepdad ended up passing away five months later. Wow. Um, and so he passed away knowing that my mom was totally taken care of. So that was yeah exactly as you're talking about like it, it came came full circle and it was wild to me that like one percent of anything that you could create could have that big of an impact on so many people
1: so yeah it, it was it was it was wild um, so I know you published this on Twitter you put it out there are you yeah. and this is your goal right you've sort of. Are, do you have a lot of business owners calling you saying, cause again, I think people think they're being greedy. I think a lot of people just don't know how to do this or create a, like, are you, ha- are you people reaching out to you saying, I want to do this. This was inspiring. Can you help me figure out how to do this? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people, uh, like mastermind talks, the community that, that
0: yeah. uh, we're both in, you know, I've, d- I taught a session for that of like, here's how I think about compensation. Um. Uh, you had Jesse Cole on the podcast, um, yeah, and uh, he and I were just talking. He's like, "Oh man, I got to figure this out. Like, let's dive in and yeah. and,
1: and." he's uh, got a a fast growing value business, yeah, where people are all in.
0: Yeah, because there's like the the structure that I'm going for. If you're like a maybe a pure services business that's not going to have a high multiple, you know, you might want to go with a different setup. Right. Yeah. There, there's various things like ESOPs. There's a whole bunch of things. Um, yeah. There's
1: fan, There's phantom equity. Um, there's a couple of different things that, yeah. that you can do. But the premise is the company is worth different amounts at different points in time. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be an exit, right? If you come in and you help grow the company from 5 to 10 million and you were a percentage of that work, then you know you want right. to leave that you should get that like that you helped create that. And then the next person will come in and go from 10 to 20 or 20 to 30. Right. right? Yeah. And
0: there's a bunch of these examples, like around the time that we were doing this MailChimp who had famously said, we're never going to sell. And that had been true for 20, 20 years. Right. And they got an offer for $12 billion. And we're like, you know, you have no idea what's going on. Like they might've gotten to the point where they're like, look, I'm tired. It's finally time, whatever else. Yeah. Um, and And then they were like, "Okay, we're going to sell, and they had had this this world where they they'd always done profit sharing in and high like fair pay and all that instead of equity right but then and, yeah, no one remembers that no the time one remembers yeah. that and they I mean they got absolutely skewered um yeah. in the press and and everything else um and like I know people who who worked at Mailchimp and they were very upset about it. I know people who had left Mailchimp like three months before that acquisition, you know, and had been there for years and yeah. like they got nothing. And it just felt like if we're going to create this much value, you should be able to walk away from the company
1: uh, at any point with some, some amount of the value that you've created. We, we had a very similar thing. We had done it more through Phantom Act. I had the same thing. I also think people hang around or yep. let's say yeah, someone's not <laughs> the right person anymore and you want to move away from them, but you think there could be something that happens in a year or two, then there's potential, Discomfort or lawsuits versus saying, "Look, you created this value during this period. Here it is, or you can hold on to it, or maybe you can hold on to it. but We got to wait till we have enough cash to buy it out." Like there just seem to be more ways to to not make it. The current system is just so binary, right? It's right. kind of it's all or nothing, and you have to be there or not be there. And it, it, mm-hmm. like to your example, that person left three months earlier after being there for ten years. You know, they're almost going to want to sue. <laughs> Out of anger, or well, like yeah, yeah. you encouraged me to leave. You didn't tell me this deal was on. Like, it, just the timing is someone's going to get screwed on the timing, right? Yep. Yeah. And so I think about well, you're talking about you know
0: these binary outcomes, and a lot of my approach to compensation is I'm trying to remove the binary thinking. So I actually think about compensation in quadrants. And so if you think about you know like a a quadrant, and across the top uh, we have short term versus long term. And then down the side, we have guaranteed and performance-based. So I want to hit all four a bucket. So short-term guaranteed is salary, right? And you got to be competitive there. Long-term guaranteed is uh, your retirement accounts, you know, your 401k match. And I like, I I just want everyone to max out their retirement. And so uh, we're at a 5% 401k match. And I want to just keep like steadily ramping that up. Um, And then on the performance-based side, you know, short-term performance based, uh, we do profit sharing. like fifty two percent of the profits in the business go to a pool for the team that gets distributed. Mm-hmm. I think we've paid out like four and a half million in profits to the team so far in the business.
1: So you do profits, and then you have to keep giving new equity as people sell too, I assume, right? Yeah. Uh,
0: we still have I just put another like batch of equity mm-hmm. into that that pool. And that's just for a realization of like, I started with owning so much of the business because I waited so long to raise capital and give out equity. Yeah. That, you know, I can give out a lot of dollars worth of equity and still own 80, 85% of the business.
1: Yeah. And this is, this is not, I think, again, there people understand too that there's risk equity and then there's not, you know, risk equity. You're getting some, sometimes I remember years ago asking people like, I want equity. I was like, well, I, there's a $2 million equity line on the business tied to my house. Like, do you do you want that sort of equity or do you want the upside only equity? They're like, oh, I want the upside only equity. You know, yeah. there there are businesses where there are capital calls, where you have to put in money. Like, there, right. I, this is the flip side too. It's not always up. People see the winners and they talk about, and, and again, this is the problem with win-lose. You'll see something like the case you were saying, like, oh, those greedy, you know, whatever founders. There's 90% of the businesses that go under and owe a million dollars. No one's chipping in their salary, yeah. you know, towards that. People are actually just mad at those <laughs> founders too, right? They're mad at those, but but they don't owe money beyond yeah. the business going out of business. I mean, I there we've lived in a very crazy ten years where more things. First of all, no one ever talks about the failures, so they they're yeah. out there. But I, you know, I was interviewing Kevin Cruz, her story where you know people remember their family losing their home, losing their stuff. So I I, I think we've gotten a little skewed on on risk and reward and you know i've talked to so many founders i'm sure for you where at some point the equity line was tied to their house it was personally guaranteed like if it went under they went under that is a very forgotten view when when things work out oh
0: yeah and i mean warren buffett talks about that quite a bit of he's like no equity is for the people who take the risk yeah. and and so i was, always appreciate that that side of it we're we're very like blessed to be in the place where the company is very stable and and all of that. So, it, like that last quadrant, you know, the long term performance based is equity, and that's for the people who, you know, are having the biggest impact in the business. So everyone has equity, but then those who are like having a, a outsized impact um, have quite a bit more equity. And so that's that's the model, and I think we've got it dialed in pretty well. This next summer, we're going to do the next, um, uh, like we're hitting that two year mark. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, put up that Twitter thread cause people kept asking about it. I was like, I have not written anything publicly about this.
1: Yeah. It was hard to follow on Twitter. You had to go to 10 parts. If you just sent me to a blog, I could, I could have read it all <laughs> together. Yeah. But going back to the first thing, Twitter has the distribution built in. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it got read by a million people or whatever. Is that what it was? So, so I assume for people who are interested in this journey, you're going to, you'll, you'll write about it, share, tell exactly what's working and not working.
0: Yeah. I try to put it, th- uh, like every three to six months, I try to write an essay on like, you know, what's actually working. I really want to run this more because I feel like, you know, in the arc of building a company, like equity has has value. Oh, we're never going to sell. It doesn't. Oh, wait, here's how we're going to do it. But we're not sure of the value. And now we've figured out that part of it. Yeah. But I'm a little bit hesitant to say this is the what everyone should do because I feel like I'm on step three of 10. You know, and doing this a few times and having this track record of these, these secondary sales. Um, like if I were looking at it from the skeptic side, I'd be like, dude, you've done this
1: once, you know. Yeah. And again, during a good environment, what happens yeah. when there's a downturn? What happens when valuations go down? Like I think we're seeing a lot of things with the economy on interest, like we've been in this thing where everything worked in the same direction for 10 years and now interest rates are different. I mean, the whole thing is going to be a little bit different. So yeah, and
0: I've tried to account for as many of those as possible, right? With the, you know, uh, the friend of ours who put in a bunch of money, we were hanging out at a conference and he was like, why didn't you go with a higher valuation? Like you could have gone 10x or more on ARR instead of 7x. And I was like, look, I want everyone to have a win. Like it was a big win for the employees. It was a um, a big win for uh, for me. And then people who are like, this is unconventional. Yeah. But sure, I want to try it. Like next time, if we do the valuation at eight or nine or ten x, they're like, oh wow, we've we've gotten a big increase, and and
1: they're seeing that tracker. And I care much more about long term. Yeah, my my experience. I, I right, if one party wins too much at one part of mm-hmm. the, 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 There is always a recalibration on the next side.
0: Yeah. And you get a bunch of, of VCs who uh, like there's a, <laughs> a talk in like VC Twitter about the founders who took advantage of the hot market last fall and winter and they took advantage of the venture capitalists and like, are they going to come down and like mark down these rounds? And it's like, you know, you could get into a case where like, I think that's nonsense. The VCs <laughs> yeah, these they're are doing. not
1: unsophisticated <laughs> people. I do find yeah. that they were just truckloads of money at the top of the market now and almost won't invest anything now with lower valuations and cheaper. Right. Which is, fascinating. is yeah. the funniest thing, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's that case. Exactly what you're saying. If
0: one side wins too much, then you're going to have a recalibration and I'm, I'm going for consistency and yeah. predictability over time.
1: All right. I know we could talk about this for hours, but uh, coming to wrap here. So last question i like to, to ask, and I always say this is multivariant. It could be singular, repeated, or personal or professional, but what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? Um,
0: this isn't a specific mistake. Let me talk about it and see if, if something else comes to mind. I think I can be very dogmatic of like, this is the way that it's supposed to be. This is the, you know, and now I like even... Like parroting someone else's like equity has no value. Yeah. You know. And you say that for a while and you're like, wait, that's just not true. You know, or it's only true in this narrow circumstance. And you're like, but what about all of these other things?
1: So so you had to learn, you had to learn to just challenge your own assumptions more.
0: Yeah, challenge my own assumptions and then say, like, this is what I believe now. And there is a decent
1: chance that two years from now, I'll be like, Yeah, no, I think this other thing. But that, to me, that's good. I was thinking about it: how much we criticize politicians who right. flop on issues. I was, I was walking the other day, and 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 why I remember Mitt Romney in particular got sort of flayed on. And again, there's strategic reason to do it. But think about the opposite we have today, where people won't right. change their opinion no matter how much facts change. Versus saying to someone, "No, I believed this, but the situation changed, or I was educated, or I heard a viewpoint, right. and I changed it." Like Derek Sivers, I interviewed, still one of my favorite interviews of all time, and he said. My favorite thing in the entire world is to change my mind. Like I loved I love that quote. I, so I was actually thinking how we often call people flip-floppers but I, I right. just find today like people won't I mean in, in the case of irrefutable evidence that they were wrong they will not change their opinion. Yeah, and so like in the politician sense it's like someone's like hey we you know we should implement x policy. Someone's
0: like well in 1988 when you were in the state legislature here's this clip of you saying
1: the opposite and they're like well yeah. <laughs> you know? Right well the problem is they said no that wasn't me saying it but the right answer <laughs> would be yeah yeah I believed that at the time but then we tried it it failed I heard this person speak we tested this like it's interesting you just don't you don't hear people willing to they get caught up in the trap of cognitive dissonance I just interviewed two people on that so uh it'd be interesting
0: yeah I think one other thing um I don't know if it's a mistake uh to what level but I think there's Plenty of times in the business that I could have been a lot more aggressive on how quickly we moved on things. I think I underestimated how much speed matters. And yeah. so there are plenty of times where I fell more into like the, you can be bootstrapped and move very, very quickly. And I think I was like, well, no, we're not that type of company who like tries right. to solve problems in a hyper-aggressive way. Uh, something that I think I got wrong is... Like I was very dogmatic about with the way that emails should look, like bringing it full circle, right? Like simple, plain text, write it like a human. The words are what matters, not these like beautiful visual templates or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and there's another company called Flowdesk that came in and built that exact feature and did it ve- like beautiful templates and did it very, very well. And they've grown to 15 million a year in revenue in three years or something off of basically one feature. Uh-huh. And that was something where I was applying what I believe and what's right for me as a creator so strongly in the product that I like miss that wave that if you're a food blogger or a fashion, like you probably like want a different experience than like you and I as writers, you know, And so we've come around on that and we've like built a really beautiful email editor and all of that that's rolling out right now. But there are those things I have a list actually. I, it's just titled unforced errors.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's some and, VCs that do that. They do their anti portfolio, like, yeah. They write up the ones they missed. I think, yeah. It's, it's just great.
0: good anytime you're about to launch into a big like decision that you feel very strongly about. Yeah, I like to pull up that list. And there's only like four or five things on it. And I actually I had forgotten about it when you first asked the question, but but now of just like, what were the things that I thought I was so right on? And then later I'm like, mm, nope, that, that was unnecessary. <laughs> you know, I I was wrong. And so like one that comes to mind, I think that you know, Convert probably be a 30 to 50% larger business. Um, if I'd like realized that different creators have different needs in that in that one area. So
1: all right, Nathan, where can people uh, read your musings, learn about you, learn about ConvertKit if they want if they're interested? Yeah. So ConvertKit's just
0: at ConvertKit.com. Um, if you're running an audience, like building an email newsletter, you should sign up there. We'll switch you happily for free over to uh, our platform. I write at NathanBerry.com. I've got a weekly newsletter, mostly just what I find interesting, but then probably every few weeks I drop an essay that's like, here's what I actually think on a topic. And then I'm on Twitter, just at NathanBerry. And that's that's the audience that I'm most trying to uh, trying to grow. Though I finally started listening to you uh, and I started uh, building audience on LinkedIn yesterday. Uh, added 1,000 subscribers yesterday. So we so went from...
1: What did you do to add 1,000 in one day? We'll talk about that offline.
0: (laughs) I took uh, I took one of my very popular Twitter threads and reposted on LinkedIn. Interesting.
1: So we went from 1,700 followers on LinkedIn to 2,700. So the advantage is you can write a piece in in full sentences uh, with with images. (laughs) It is an advantage, right? When you're writing thought pieces. So all right, Nathan, thanks for joining us. I I always uh, learn something from our conversations, and I look forward to seeing you again uh, soon in the real world. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. You can learn more about Nathan and ConvertKit on the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, as always, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review. It's what helps new users discover the show. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevated.